This message was presented at the GYC 2012 conference in Seattle, Washington. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. All right, good afternoon, everyone. How do you guys feel? Sluggish? Do you feel good? Do you feel tired? Is it warm in here or is it just me? It's the perfect temperature for this seminar then. So it's just going to get a whole lot hotter. Amen? But with the Holy Spirit. So the name of the seminar is called Terminating Eternal Torture. Terminating Eternal Torture. Uh, This is going to be a very interesting seminar. And as we progress, there are various points that are going to come out. I would highly recommend to you that you would take notes. I'm not sure when this recording is going to be up, but it'd be very important to take notes. Some of the stuff I'm sharing with you, I really believe that God has led in, and it's going to be, can be very instrumental in reaching many people, in reaching many people. So uh, before we go any further, I'd like to start by asking Jesus to bless us with the greatest of all preachers and teachers, the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for John chapter 16 that says, When he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you to all truth. Father in heaven, we need to understand this topic, this subject, like never before. It is very relevant, Lord, and as we get closer and closer to the end of time, we know that this message could save many people and draw them back into the fold. Please bless us with insight with understanding, sharpen our minds, and we pray by the very end of this message that we walk away with our minds blown because we have sat in the presence of God. We claim Jeremiah 33, verse 3, that says, Call upon me, and I will show you great and mighty things which you do not know. Lord, we hold that promise and ask that you would bless us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, the name of the seminar is called Terminating Eternal Torture, What Adventists and Atheists Have in Common. Again, you might have heard some of this, uh, this very similar seminar on, uh, on Audioverse, but I want to let you know that we've, I've gone in a very different direction. I've also included a, lot of, a whole new insight into this topic. Uh, just also giving you a little bit about uh, what's going to happen tomorrow. Tomorrow we're going to cover Genocide of God or Just Judge. That's going to be very, very important. I mean, my mind has been blown just studying this topic. I've also been corresponding with Paul who's considered one of the foremost authorities on the Old Testament wars. And he's not an Adventist, but he knows his stuff. I've even sent him some Ellen White quotes just to see what he thinks about them. And it's really interesting, some of the dialogue that's been taking place. We're also going to be talking about Jesus' apologetic on Ellen White, and that is tomorrow. So those two... Starts at 9:45. Am I right about that? 9:45, and I believe at 10:50. The other one I'm going to be covering on Monday is called "Buried Truths in World Religions." That's also new stuff as well. Biblical secrets in Genesis revealed. This is not a seminar I've done with a lot of people, but your mind is going to be blown by the end of this. You might have heard seminars on the Book of Genesis, but I guarantee you, come to this seminar, you're going to learn a whole, a whole lot of stuff. Amen. And then I may give my testimony, that one's still tentative, from Sikhism, Hinduism, to Sikhism, how I was born and raised, I also come from a Sikh and Hindu background, and how I became a Seventh-day Adventist. Very interesting story, and we may do some Q&A, depending on the time. I don't know what time it is right now. Okay, it is 3.08. 3.08. So, we want to be done by 4 o'clock, so just bump 
up and hang on, all right? Okay, now this is a very interesting quote by Josh Billings. This is what he says, As scarce as truth is, the supply has always been in excess of the demand. Can you say amen to that? That's in regards to the truth. God has so much truth to reveal to us, amen? And if we think we know all the truth, we are wrong. We know very little. Because truth is always progressive. By the way, does anybody know what the word disciple actually means? It means learner. If you're called to be a disciple of Christ, what are you called to be? An everlasting learner. In other words, somebody who's always going to be learning at the feet of Jesus. I've been blown away just studying the, what Ellen White said about heaven and how heaven is just going to be this progressive opening up of who God is, the infinite God. And it's going to be really exciting. All right. So let's get into this. Now, there are four individuals. One of them passed away, I believe it was sometime earlier in the year. And these, are, these individuals are called the four horsemen of atheism. How many people have heard of the four horsemen of atheism? You have Richard Dawkins. You also have Sam Harris. You have Chris, uh, Christopher Hitchens. And you have Daniel Dennett. Christopher Hitchens just passed away. I believe it was earlier in the year. And these individuals are, what's, are people who have been branded the new atheists the new militant atheists, because they have a very aggressive approach in their atheism. They've been part of many debates. You can go to YouTube, you can see all the debates that take place there. They write articles that really denounce Christianity, denounce religion altogether. They're sometimes very rude as well. And so that's why they've been seen as sort of the new atheists, very militant atheists. These individuals have said some very interesting things about Christianity. Areas that they particularly attack is the doctrine of God's divine justice. In other words, what happens in the afterlife? It's very interesting. Pay attention to some of these quotes right here. Many of these people will be going to hell because they're praying to the wrong God. Just think about that. Okay, there are about 1.2 billion people in India at this time. Most of them are Hindu. Most of them are polytheists. No matter how good these people are, they are doomed. If you are, you are praying to the monkey god Hanuman. If you are doomed, okay, you'll be tortured in hell for eternity. This was an individual, his name is Sam Harris. He's one of the four horsemen. He said this in a debate. Very interesting. Now watch what this individual says. The extreme horribleness of hell as portrayed by priests and nuns is inflated to compensate for its implausibility. If hell were plausible, it would only have to be moderately unpleasant in order to deter. Is so unlikely to be true, it has to be advertised as very scary indeed to balance its implausibility and retain some deterrence value. This individual is none other than Richard Dawkins. Watch what this horseman says Eternal torture, eternal punishment for you and your family for the smallest transgression. I have no hesitation in saying that this is a wicked belief. When they take a good look at mainstream Christianity and they see what is used as a motivating factor to lead people to heaven, they're just when they realize this idea is based upon fear and it's based upon misinformation. This individual is none other than Christopher Hitchens. The Christian God is a God of judgment and punishment, eternal punishment for unrepentant sinners and disbelievers. If you read the Bible literally, the perpetrator of infinite pain. And this was written by Daniel Den in an article entitled, The Emperor Has No Clothes. Very interesting. When you take a good look at their, their focus of attack, it's usually upon this idea of, of what, what many mainstream Christians believe happens to the wicked, and that is that they suffer an eternity in hell. 
What's very interesting, all these individuals have a forefather. And this individual's name is this. Charles Darwin. This is what he says. I can hardly see ought to wish Christianity to be true. For if so, the plain language of the text seems to show that men who do not believe, and this would include my father, brother, and almost all my best friends, will be everlastingly punished. And this is a damnable doctrine. In fact, what you do when you take a good look at uh, um, Charles Darwin's life, you'll discover that part of his rejection of God was not based upon that he was discovering all these pieces of evidence that were verifying his theory. It actually began with the rejection of the Christian God, and that was based upon certain views that he grew up with. In fact, I was reading one part of his um, diary, and he mentioned that it is hard for him to accept uh, the idea of God because the idea that God would be burning people for all eternity, including his best friend, would be something he could not comprehend. And so here you have an individual who laid a foundation of rejection of God, and it led to other individuals the same rejection as well. Very interesting. But when you take a good look at this group, and you realize, man, these individuals have really rejected this teaching of an eternal burning, burning torment uh, doctrine, there are other individuals who fall in the same camp. Watch this. How repugnant, does anybody know what the word repugnant means? It means noxious. How noxious to every emotion of love and mercy, and even to our sense of justice, is the doctrine that the wicked dead are tormented with fire and brimstone in eternally burning hell. That for the sins of a brief earthly life, they are, su- they are to suffer torture as long as God shall live. Yet this doctrine has been widely taught and is still embodied in many of the creeds of Christendom. You would think, wow, another atheist. Well, you're wrong about that. It was none other than Ellen White. Watch what this individual says right here. For this reason, Christianity, in one breath, the God of infinite mercy and pity, and in another, describes the fires of hell in which millions upon millions, right, even now in horrible and unending pain, has for many people become an absurd joke. What does eternal torment say about God's character? What, time, what kind of justice does it represent? After a few billion eons burning in hell, even Hitler would have paid for his own sins. This is none other than Clifford Goldstein. I really like this guy, by the way. He has a very, like, kind of... Anyways, okay. Here's another individual. Think for a moment about the implications of a doctrine that would consign every lost soul to an immediate, never-ending hell at the time of death. Suppose a man died 5,000 years ago with one cherished sin in his life. His soul would go instantly into the fire to be tormented for eternity. Then picture another death, that of Adolf Hitler, who supervised the deaths of millions of people. According to the popular doctrine, his soul would immediately enter hell to suffer eternally. But the man who was lost because of only one sin will burn 5,000 years longer than Hitler. You're yourself, oh, it's another atheist. Wrong again. None other than Joe Cruz. Can you say that? Watch what this individual says right here. I love it. First, I don't believe in the hell you believe in because God is not going to torment for mil- people for millions and millions of years. So we smell their burning flesh. But the problem is this, that the hell I believe is in is hotter than the hell you believe in. They said, what do you mean? I said, the hell that the Bible teaches about gets the job done. And earth and sin consumes them to ashes, then God makes a new world. But the hell you believe in isn't hot enough because it just torments people for millions of years. Mark Finley. <laughs> Can you say amen to that? Yes. Very interesting when you take a good look at all these things and all the what people are saying, you actually find their 
two into two entities that can actually side together and say, look, we reject this philosophically wrong, doesn't make sense, and it's not really scriptural. Not really scriptural. Well, one of the reasons why I'm talking about this subject is because last year something strange took place. I was preaching an evangelistic series at my church, and one of the nights that I was preaching about, it was about the state of the dead, and the very next night I was preaching about what happens to the wicked at the end of time. Well, I got extremely sick. I mean, I was just really, really sick. I don't get sick. But when I get sick, it's like Ebola virus with a no candor. Okay, so I got sick. People were praying. They did the hydrotherapy. I got much better. And I preached. The Holy Spirit had that entire weekend. God really blessed. I don't think I've ever preached a more clear sermon on the dead and hell. But what was strange was this. Monday, we had off. One of the individuals who was attending the seminar came and they talked to me. And they said, you know, I went to my church. Something strange was said. It was a mega church. And they said, the same weekend that you were preaching about what the Bible teaches about hell, my pastor, who's the pastor of a big mega church, he had a dream in the middle of the night. And in the dream in the middle of the night, he saw hell. He experienced hell. And he was feeling the heat and he could see all the people being tortured and tormented and how there was no tolerance. They were just progressing agony. And as he was just experiencing this, he woke up in a cold sweat. And he said he felt that God had called him to tell his mega church that morning about what God has for those who reject him. At the same time, in the exact same city, and I realized right then and there, I'm experiencing the great controversy about this subject. Mm-hmm. Folks, I want to let you know the devil does not want this teaching to be told. You know, Winston Churchill, he has this very interesting quote. I'm going to adapt it a little bit. He said, the truth is the most important thing. It's so often hidden by a bodyguard of lies. Very interesting. Very interesting. George Orwell once said, in a time when universal deceit, telling the truth is a what? Revolutionary act. Simply so, because pervasive on our planet today is some of the most sinister lies concerning the character of God. It has been perpetuated for generations that for the loss in expected afterlife of endless, unceasing fiery torment them where there is no mercy, no tolerance, and only an infinitude of progressive agony. The redeemed will spend eternity joyful and relishing the bliss of heaven, while the unsaved below are ever suffering miserably for one lifetime of deeds. Those who propose such a view believe that it is perfectly consistent, biblically, and that it is philosophically harmonious with the picture of an all-loving God. Thinkers and scholars alike have pondered about the plausibility Actual eternal hell. However, as of more recently, this traditional view has been seriously challenged. But there have always been entities that have always warred against such questionable doctrines. One school of thought being atheism, and the other, Seventh-day Adventism. Both see the fallacious misuse of philosophy and or scripture to defend medieval views. Unfortunately, where one entity has re-examined the scripture, the other has completely abandoned it, such as the fruit of lies. And such must be viewed as entirely evil, disgusting, revolting, illogical, inhumane, irreconcilable, and above all, worthy of the lake of fire. Can you say amen to that? It is high time to proclaim the accurate truth about the judgment like never before. And if the truth be treason, then revolutionaries, we must be in this world of lies. Amen? The Protestant Reformation is not over. All right. Just to give you an understanding about this, there was a debate that took place in 1994 with one of what's considered the great greatest the Christian apologist, 
the word someone who defends mainstream Christian views, and that's William Lane Craig. He's debated probably more atheists than any other Christian apologist. He took on a, an atheist by the name of Raymond D. Bradley. And in this debate, Raymond took the forefront, and he began to say some very interesting things to William Lane Craig. He said, if you believe in a God who is loving, if you believe in a God who is just, I'm going to lay about four or five propositions to you, and you're going to see that a God who is just and a God who is loving cannot possibly burn people for all of eternity. And these are his exact propositions right here. Proposition one, a perfectly good being would not torture anyone for any period, whatever, however brief. Proposition number two, a just being wouldn't punish someone eternally for the sins committed during a brief lifetime, but would proportion the punishment to the offense. Proposition number three. By the way, this is coming from an atheist. A righteous being would not punish someone eternally for unavoidable lack of belief. Proposition number four. A loving being would not bring about and perpetuate the suffering of those that it loved. He says, look, if you believe in God who is just, and if you believe in God who is loving, these four propositions ought to be true. Well, sure enough, William Lane Craig completely rejected it. But here's the thing. If I was up there on that panel, you know what I'd do? I'd get up. I'd walk over to this guy, Raymond D. Bradley. I said, brother, I believe those exact same things. <laughs> Amen? Amen? You believe those exact same things. And folks, this is what's so interesting, is that we're falling in the exact same camp of atheists. Actually, you find atheists on one end of the spectrum, and you find creationists, us, on the other end of the spectrum. And we're together, and we're going against the mainstream Protestant view. Very interesting. Very interesting. Now watch what Ellen White says right here. It's very it is beyond the power of the human mind to estimate the evil which has been wrought by the heresy of eternal torment. The religion of the Bible, full of love and goodness, has a be- and abounding in compassion, is darkened by superstition and clothed with terror. When we consider in what false colors Satan has painted the character of God, can we wonder that our merciful creator is feared, dreaded, and even hated? The appalling views of God which have spread over the world from the teachings of prophet have made thousands, yes, millions of skeptics and infidels. She is talking about this false teaching, how many people with just their right mind, with some honesty and sincerity, they look at this teaching and they said, there is no way a God who is loving could do this to his children. And what they do as an effect of that, they completely reject God altogether. So this is one response to this lie, is a complete rejection of everything that Christianity holds. Very interesting, there is another option that some individuals go to when they take a good look at this heresy. And it's what Ellen White says right here. A large class, a small class? A large class, in other words, a lot of people to whom the doctrine of eternal torment is revolting are driven to the opposite error, they see that the scriptures represent God as a being of love and compassion, and they cannot believe that he will consign his creatures to the fires of eternally burning hell. But holding that the soul is naturally immortal, they see no alternative but to conclude that all mankind will be finally be saved. And this is very interesting. She is talking about what happened when some people begin to look honestly at this view. And sure enough, there's been some individual who actually breached mainstream Christian and they swung the entire way. One individual's name is Rob Bell. You guys heard of Rob Bell, right? What's so interesting about this, he's not being forthright, but when you read he's asking all, he's basically leading all the paths right down to this conclusion. Very interesting. 
But the problem, when you take a look at this view, is, wait a minute, how could it be that someone who is evil, someone who is wicked, could ever be in heaven and still retain their freedom of choice? Another obstacle that's presented here. Very interesting, you're seeing the fruit of these lies. What's happened recently is that because of this raw bell guy, because of this one individual who's who's actually gone to the other camp, a lot of other pastors and well-known evangelicals have also left the mainstream view. It's very interesting. There was a man by the name of Kevin Miller. He just did this documentary. It came out in September. I'm going to share it with you, the trailer. Okay? I highly recommend that you see this documentary. He is not taking a stance in this documentary. Need to take a second look at the question of hell. The question of hell. In fact, what's so interesting, I was reading an article that he wrote. He said that when two months when he was in this project, two months into this project, he said Rob Bell came out with his book called Love Wins. And he said he believed God was showing him that this needed to come out. All right, now I'm going to show you this trailer right now. By the way, this is what it says on that actual website Does hell exist? If so, who ends up there and why? Preaching eclectic groups of authors, theologians, pastors, social commentaries, and musicians, Hellbound is a provocative feature-length documentary that will ensure you will never look at hell the same way again. Coming to theaters in fall 2012. And here is that trailer. If you have a paradigm that doesn't allow you to ask questions... By the way, there's this little raunchy music in there. And inside the traditional paradigm of Dante's hell, Inferno, you're not allowed to ask all kinds of questions. It's not a problem to ask questions, but sometimes when certain questions are asked, it's by someone who's a coward and doesn't have the conviction to declare their answer. The notion that there really isn't hell is simply a wussy effort to make God a nice guy. Can anyone really believe that Hitler's had a second chance? I don't think so. So ultimately, the panoply of Scripture is pointing to one thing, and that is either reconciliation with God or separation from God. Every day. Just take a step back a little bit and hear how that sounds. You better accept Jesus Christ or you're going to burn forever in hell. Oh, God loves you. <laughs> you often find folks whose map is the territory. If you disagree with them, you're not disagreeing with them, you're disagreeing with God. I use the language of national and state borders or boundaries. I can work with anybody in the state borders, but I can't partner with anyone who's crossed a national border. I gotta tell you, that's not a good way to be. If someone's got a a position or argument, and you think it's wrong, then why do you fear looking at it? Truth shouldn't have anything to fear. It's rather amazing to me that more people aren't saying, this can't be right. Seems like a very exciting documentary to watch, amen? But here's the thing, you have these individuals who are now rejecting this teaching, this mainstream teaching, and who are looking for answers. But here's the most remarkable thing. Many of them are unaware of the Seventh-day Adventist biblical understanding of hell. And you know how I know this? Because if you go onto this website, there was a survey that was being done. Okay? 
Now take a good look at this survey and see the results. And it'll show you very clearly where Seventh-day Adventists rank in their understanding of what hell is. Eternal torment, 40% people believe in eternal torment. 21% believe it doesn't exist. 17% believe it's universalism, which is swinging the other way, that everyone's going to be safe. And watch the last one. Annihilationism, in other words, complete destruction, only 10%. Folks, that, that alarms me because it helps me to understand, wait a minute, there must not be a lot of people who actually understand the biblically accurate view of what the Bible, what the Bible teaches about hellfire. Can you say amen to that? And that's why it's very important for Seventh-day Adventists like us to share the message. What I'm going to continue with this in this presentation, I'm just kind of bringing up modern issues, but we're going to be going towards how can we share a strong apologetics when it comes to this teaching about hell. Very interesting, there's another movie that's come out. Has anybody heard of this movie? It's called Head of Hell and Mr. Fudge, right? Have you seen the trailer for this? Okay, well, I'm going to show you the trailer as well. What's so interesting, I actually had a personal interview with Mr. Fudge, Edward Fudge, and I'm going to talk about that in just a bit. And uh, by the way, he is not a Seventh-day Adventist, but here's his trailer right here for his movie. By the way, this is being made by, seven, by Seventh-day Adventists. I believe in January is when they start really advertising this. Well, I was approached by a Canadian fellow named Robert Smead, and uh, he's been consumed with this whole idea of hell. Well, this fellow had read some of my articles and, and offered to pay me a little money to study the subject, so that is what I'm prepared to do. Well, I think the death of that Hollis boy really changed him. It made him question things maybe he hadn't thought about. Is he in hell? Is Davey in hell? You see, when you have a friend and then suddenly he's gone, and you're told he's burning forever in hell, that would change you. That would change anybody. Now, Edward, you realize you're attacking the very foundation of Christian religion. Folks are partial to the truth that they already got. What's a kid doing burning forever in hell? Would a loving God really do that? <laughs> I found a missing piece of the puzzle. It is, it is so simple, I can't believe I missed it. I mean, we have all missed it. Gospel is not about building up walls to keep people out. It's about breaking down walls to invite people in. <laughs> you keep telling them that, Mr. Fudge. Make it your own. This Fudge character is out of control, and I, for one, want him stopped. Edward, can he do that? What do you want to do? Ignore him? I want to take them all. I think we need to send a message loud and clear to all the Edward Fudges of the world that we are not about to let his lies and distortions go unchallenged. Mr. Holloway says I have my own gospel, but he is mistaken. I don't have my own gospel, and I certainly don't have some corner on truth. Edward Fudge, A Dangerous Voice in Troubled Times by Don Holloway. I'll just go ahead and get right to the point. Edward, uh, we feel that now might be a good time for a change. You're firing me? Nothing but a lynching, pure and simple. Well, I see that our guest has arrived, so we might as well get started. You know, if I had a couple of slices of bread and some mayonnaise, I could make a sandwich with all the bologna here tonight. 
What would your father say? His father was my husband. To be tearing down the very church he loved and everything it stood for. How dare you! You know, it's really hard to see you like this. You just wait until all of evangelical Christendom shows up at your doorstep ready for some, some serious grilling. something, Mr. Fudge. You don't have to solve every mystery. Not by yourself, anyway. It's a tear in your eyes, doesn't it? <laughs> A little sensitive when it comes to the subject. But uh, this is an individual, his name is Edward Fudge. Let me just tell you about Edward Fudge. He was an individual, he was a lawyer, a Christian lawyer, wasn't an Adventist. One individual who was kind of a wealthy individual who was actually a former Seventh-day Adventist, very prominent Seventh-day Adventist, had completely rejected, it was Robert Brimsmead, some of you guys may know who he is, completely rejected everything that was Seventh-day Adventist. I believe he still lives in Australia, I'm not quite sure about that completely rejected everything that was Seventh-day Adventist. But he was still troubled about this question about hell. So he didn't want to go to a Seventh-day Adventist because he knew what, those, what would come back. So he actually hired this lawyer who he knew to be an honest man. He said to him, he said, look, I'm going to pay you some money, and I want you to study out this topic, and I want you to be completely honest with what Scripture teaches. Well, this individual, Edward Fudge, began to pray and began to study out what the Bible teaches and came to the exact same conclusions as Seventh-day Adventists believe. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Folks, the truth is the truth. Amen? Now, what was so interesting, as I was talking to him, I was quizzing him. I was just seeing where he was at. The man is a very godly man. He knows this stuff, too. He knew very well about the doctrine of the second death and what happened at the cross. In fact, while we were talking about the cross over the phone, he started weeping and crying. This man has an understanding of the second death and what happened at the cross. Very interesting. Yet, he does not have all the light. In fact, what was so funny... It was like, I asked him, there was a bit of pause, and I said, hey, can I ask you a question? And he's like, I bet you I know what your next question is. I said, what is it? He said, you're going to ask me if I've studied out the Sabbath, which is much intensity as I've studied out this teaching. And I was like, how do you know? He's like, I've talked to a lot of Adventists. <laughs> and you know what he said? He said, look, I haven't. Let me just be honest with you. I haven't studied out the topic, but I do believe the Sabbath is Saturday. Very interesting. Now, this is where it gets even more interesting. He said two years ago he was involved in with a, a debate with the well-known evangelical minister at Biola. Does anybody know where Biola campus is down in Southern California? Well-known evangelical college. He said he went down there for a debate about hell. He was to present his view, annihilation, in other words, when God completely destroys sinners, and he was to go against another well-known evangelical who was going to present views that God is going to destroy the wicked or going to burn the wicked for all of eternity. And in this debate, he said half an hour before the debate started, the 400-plus seating auditorium was completely packed. Then he said when the debate started, they had to turn away so many people, which tells me a lot of people are asking questions. Right. Now you ready for this? Oh, this one's going to come across as a right, right jab to you. And then he, this is what Edward Fudge said to me at the very end. And he says, and you Adventists, oh, you can see where this is going. You Adventists have this truth, 
and you're hiding it under a rock. I said, I'm not hiding under a rock. But here's the thing, folks. God wants us to share this message with a lot of people. Amen? And a lot of people want to know this message. I have done so many Bible studies. I've baptized a number of people. And when I present this topic, you can just see the change in their face and how their countenance goes from being fallen to just starts glowing. I've never, I've, every time I've given this Bible study, I said, and hell isn't forever. What? And it's like they're just a brand new person all of a sudden. Folks, because when I became, I was born and raised a Hindu, I come from a Sikh background. When I first learned this truth, in fact, one of the reasons why I stayed away from Christianity was because of this teaching. I was given these little, it was their version of GLOW, it was a little bit cheaper, but, uh, and what it showed, it showed uh, a, a little cartoon figure, he was between two places, and there God was offering him the cross, and heaven, and there was clouds, and there were angels. On the other side, there was just fiery turmoil, where there were these souls that were burning and writhing in pain, and... This is what the loving God wants to do for you. And it was very difficult for me. But I never forgot when my Sabbath school instructor gave me Bible studies and I learned this topic, I never forgot that moment when I stepped out of the Sabbath school and it was like the sun was shining again and the birds were chirping and the sky, I mean, it was clear all day, but it was just beautiful experience. And I realized, wait a minute, my motivation for going to heaven doesn't have to be hell. My motivation for going to heaven is heaven. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Now, there are a lot of credible scholars who just probably in the last 30, 40 years who've also taken this stance. But this is what I want you to understand. Uh, one of the reasons why a lot of these well-known evangelicals are blasting these universalists is because philosophically they're coming at their arguments, well, just that's it, philosophically and not really scripturally. But there has been a number of scholars, non-Adventist scholars, who've come to the same conclusion as Seventh-day Adventists. One individual's name was F.F. Bruce, well-known and well-respected in the evangelical world. Annihilation, that's just another word for complete destruction, is certainly an acceptable interpretation of the relevant New Testament passages. Eternal conscious torment is incompatible with the revealed, that's a key word, character of God. John Stott, anybody know who he is? He passed away. This brother was so respected. I mean, he was just got so many awards and uh, just respect from evangelicals. Look at what he said. I do not dogmatize about the position to which I come. I hold it tentatively. I believe that the ultimate annihilation of the wicked should at least be accepted as a legitimate, biblically founded alternative to their eternal conscious torment. Anybody know who John Piper is? John Piper is a well-known evangelical, probably one of the most popular well-known evangelical preachers that are out there. And he is completely on the other side of this. He believes that God burns people for all of eternity. But he, he, him and John Stott were good friends. In, in fact, John Stott was considered his mentor. And so when John Stott took to this position, it really caused some tension. In fact, I was looking at some of the correspondence that was taking place. And John Piper started saying, well, John Stott's coming to some unusual conclusions. And uh, it was so interesting. Some of the letters that John Stott wrote back to Piper was simply, look, you're just a young kid. You don't know about this topic. They're just good friends like that. But it's very interesting. This man was an extremely humble man and very scripturally based. And this is why it caused so much tension in the Christian world is because this man wasn't just bringing philosophy. He was bringing scripture. Amen. Very interesting. Very interesting. Here's another one. John Wenham, who's also known as a well-known Greek New Testament scholar. In fact, what's so interesting is a lot of evangelical colleges still use his Greek textbook. 
Folks, these are not just Seventh-day Adventists or individuals off there in the corner. These are well-known evangelicals who have taken to the exact same position as Seventh-day Adventists. Watch what he says right here. It's just so powerful. I feel that the time has come when I must declare my mind honestly. I believe that endless torment is a hideous and unscriptural doctrine which has been a terrible burden on the mind of the church for many centuries and a terrible blot on her presentation of the gospel. I should indeed be happy if before I die that I could help in sweeping it away. Most of all, I should rejoice to see a number of theologians joining in researching this great topic. He died in 1996. He didn't see what took place the last few years. Because there has been a lot of theologians now discussing this issue like never before. Again, we're just dealing with current issues, and then we're going to deal with an apologetic about hell. Here's one individual I thought was very interesting. Look what he says. But I noticed that our Lord, while stressing the terror of hell with unsparing severity, usually emphasizes the idea of duration, but uh, not of duration, but of finality. Consignment to the destroying fire is usually treated as the end of the story, not as the beginning of a new story. That the lost souls is eternally fixed in its diabolical attitude, we cannot doubt. But whether this eternal fixity implies endless duration or duration at all, we cannot see. It was C.S. Lewis. Very interesting. These are, this, was, and this is something that blew my mind away. Now, the Qumran scrolls were discovered in 1947. There were so many documents that are found that are still being studied out. It's so interesting. But did you know the individuals who were responsible, who scholars believe, archaeologists believe, were responsible for putting those Dead Sea Scrolls there, who many people believe were the Essenes, they're not quite 100% sure about that. There is some evidence that seems to show that the Essenes were responsible. But these individuals who put those scrolls there, who many evangelicals accept as verification of the scriptures, were themselves annihilationists. And all the ages of generation, they, the ungodly, shall spend in bitter weeping and harsh evils in the abysses of darkness until their destruction without, without there being a remnant or survivor among them. Can you say amen to that? Very interesting. Here are some other individuals who had kind of a, a different take, but they ultimately came to the same conclusions of annihilation. One was Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr. Very interesting. Another individual was Rabbi Halal. He had a version of annihilation that would be probably more in the camp of Seventh-day Adventists than it would be with mainstream Protestants. There was so much confusion, but you see, these are very well-known, notable individuals within their various spheres of influence who had come to the same exact stance. Very interesting, very interesting. Now we're going to get into some apologetics. Now, what, I, what I'm going to share with you is going to be very powerful, but I want you to take notes. But we have to pay attention to what C.S. Lewis says right now. The question of being an apologist is not so much whether you use an apologetic, that just means a defense, in answering someone's question, but whether the apologetic you already use is a good one. Can you say amen to that? We're always witnessing. Amen? It's just you're a good witness or a bad witness. You can't stop being a witness. Amen? God said, you are my witness. And God wants the best witnesses up on the stand, right? It was so interesting. One of my friends, she wasn't the greatest of all preachers, but she said, I'm going to witness for the Lord. And she did an evangelistic series, and she didn't prepare on the Sabbath question. And as she presented the Sabbath, it was down in South America, it was so funny, because the elders were complaining later on that she was telling the entire congregation that Sunday was the Sabbath. And that wasn't her intent, but she just wasn't stating it correctly. And she was so embarrassed. Very interesting. 
Very interesting. All right, now we're getting some powerful insights when it comes to this question about hell. Let's take a good look at some of the arguments. Number one, argument one, God is angry with the wicked, therefore he keeps them out of heaven. This is an assumption that many traditionalists have. God is angry with the wicked, therefore he keeps them out of heaven. But watch what Ellen White says here. And by the way, one of the reasons why I quote Ellen White is not because of her authority, but because of the strength of her argument. I mean, this woman was inspired by God. Can you say amen to that? If you don't believe me, come to session three. It is no arbitrary decree on the part of God that excludes the wicked from heaven. They are shut out by their own, what's those next four words? Unfitness for its what? Companionship. In other words, it's not that heaven did not have a heart for the wicked. It's that the wicked did not have a heart for heaven. By the way, do you know the Lord's Prayer? Do you remember what Jesus says? Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy what? Will be done. Where? On earth. Now let me ask you a question. Do we pray for God's will to be done on earth, yes or no? Do we pray for God's will to be done in heaven, yes or no? No? Good, I'm just testing you guys. We don't need to pray for God's will to be done in heaven. Why? Because heaven is a place where what is already being done? God's will. Earth is a place where God's will is not done. Can you say amen to that? So this is important. One of the reasons why God doesn't just take everybody to heaven is because they're not doing the will of God. They're not, already, they're not doing the will of God. It would be confusion and rebellion would start up again. But this is extremely important. Watch what she says right here. The glory of God would be to them a consuming what? Fire. They would welcome destruction that they might be hidden from the face of him who died to redeem them. In other words, if God just took all the wicked to heaven, you know what would eventually take place? Heaven would become like hell to them. In fact, one of the reasons why God completely annihilates them is because he is saving them from eternal torment. Does that make sense, yes or no? God is actually saving the wicked from eternal torment by not taking them up to heaven and by completely annihilating them. In his mercy, he is destroying them. Now watch what this is. This is very interesting. Take your Bible, go to Revelation chapter 12. I'm going to show you something so powerful right here. You're going to be blown away by this. Go to Revelation chapter 12, and you're there, go ahead and say amen. All right, let's start with Revelation chapter 12, verse 7. This is going to be an extremely powerful point right here. You're going to be blown away by this, okay? Revelation chapter 12, verse 7. Are we all there? Now pay attention to what the Bible says. And war broke out where? In heaven, Michael and his angels fought with the who? Dragon. And who's the dragon? Is it talking about China? No. The Bible interprets the Bible, amen? Okay. And the dragon and his angels what? Fought, but they did not what? Prevail, nor was a... Now pay attention to the phrase. Nor was a place found for them in heaven, where? Any longer. By the way, when did this verse take place? It took place at the cross. It took place at the cross. There was sort of an exiling that took place, but ultimately it was heaven that kicked Lucifer out of heaven. Does that make sense, yes or no? In other words, when there was doubt in heaven... Satan had an audience, and when Satan had an audience, he had property. That's one of the reasons why he could visit heaven all the way up to the time of the cross. But eventually, all the unfallen worlds became very convinced about his true character, and Satan was considered unfit for heaven. And that's why the Bible says there was not what found for them? A place for them any longer. They were considered unfit for heaven. 
Now go to Revelation chapter 20. I'm going to show you something very remarkable. And you're going to see what the Bible says about the destruction of the wicked right here. Revelation chapter 20. Let's start with verse 11. Revelation 20 verse 11. Are we all there? Then I saw the great white throne and the him, and him who sat on it, whose face the earth and heaven fled away. Now pay attention to the next part. And there was found what? No place for them. This is when the wicked are before God. So what is the Bible teaching right here? That earth, that the wicked are no longer fit for earth. That's why the Bible uses the exact same phrase found in talking about Lucifer. He was no longer fit for heaven. Now the Bible's talking about the destruction of the wicked, that they're no longer fit for earth. Does that make sense, yes or no? All right, let's keep going now. Argument number two, sinners given the punishment of eternal burning hell is very pleasing to God and to the redeemed. In fact, you look at some of the church fathers that were trying to defend this teaching and they would write, there's some crazy, insane quotes by them where they were saying, when all the redeemed are looking at hell in millions of years in the future and they're seeing the wicked burning, they're going to be pleased and satisfied with the justice of God. But watch what the Bible says right here very clearly. Ezekiel 33 verse 11, saying to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no what? Pleasure in the death of the wicked. Does God take pleasure or satisfaction in the death of the wicked? Yes or no? no? Absolutely not. Now think about this. If God was continually destroying the wicked for all of eternity, you know what that would mean? God could never be happy. And if God could never be happy, guess who would never be happy? The redeemed either. That's why God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. In fact, do you remember when those two disciples were walking with Jesus and, uh, on the road to uh, past Samaria and they reje- the Samaritans rejected Jesus? Do you remember what those two disciples says? Lord, we should call down what? From heaven. You know what they were quoting from? They weren't quoting so much from Elijah's experience. They were quoting from Sodom and Gomorrah's experience. And they said, these people deserve an eternal judgment. They deserve to be destroyed. And do you remember what Jesus said? You don't even know what manner of spirit you are. He rebuked their desire to destroy other people. Does that make sense? Yes or no? Let's keep going. Argument number three. Since the eternal God was offended, and by the way, this is more of a sophisticated argument. You actually find this by many apologists. But you're going to see how illogical this really is. Since the eternal God was offended, therefore his punishment must be eternally progressive for him to be satisfied. I remember I was arguing with this Christian apologist who's working on his PhD, and he was trying to defend this view that God burns people for all of eternity simply because he is eternal. Now I thought about that for just a second. I'm like, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Now watch what I wrote right here. Because reconcile infinite torment with justice and fairness is illogical, traditionalists will often paint the target around the bullet hole by connecting two independent things, the necessary duration of judgment or for justice and God's immortality. In other words, they're simply saying, because God, the reason why God's destroying the wicked forever is because he's immortal. He's been eternally offended. Therefore, there needs to be an eternal punishment. And so what they do, they connect two independent things. Watch. Some would rather contrive a false connection than simply admit that they don't quite understand how infinite punishing could be. In truth, God's innate immortality has no scriptural or logical bearing on any supposed necessity to punish people without end. God is not bound or forced to punish anyone infinitely simply because he is immortal. Can you say amen to that? There is no connection there whatsoever. 
but traditionalists produce the connection to eternal torture to sound less questionable or more intelligent. It's related to the clustering illusion, which is the natural human tendency to see patterns where none actually exists. That God is immortal does not necessitate infinite punishment for sin to achieve justice. Such theological manipulation is just an attempt to extract, extract sense from the senseless. Can you say amen to that? But there is no connection between God's immortality and his, the duration of punishment. Argument number four. There are many verses that talk about everlasting punishment. Everlasting punishment, everlasting punishment. By the way, the next argument comes from Basil Atkinson, who was an individual who actually passed away, but he inspired many of these well-known scholars like John Stott and John Wyndham to take this stance. But look what he says. When the adjective, anios, which is meaning the word everlasting, is used in Greek with nouns of action, it has reference to the result of the act, not the process. The phrase everlasting punishment is comparable to everlasting redemption and everlasting salvation. Both scriptural phrases. No one supposes that we are being redeemed or saved forever. We are redeemed and saved once for all by Christ with eternal results. Can you say amen to that? In the same way, the lost will not be passing through the process of punishment forever, but will be punished once and with, for all with eternal results. On the other hand, the noun life is not a noun of action, but a noun expressing a state. Thus, life itself is eternal. That's Basil Atkinson. I highly recommend you take a good look at his word. His word. Argument number five. The Bible talks about weeping and gnashing. Sounds like the fire is tormenting them. Let's take a good look at that. Matthew chapter 8, Matthew chapter 22, Matthew chapter 25. It's the only part, part in the Gospels where this phrase appears. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be what? Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Grinding your teeth. Then the king said to his servants, bind him hand and foot, take him outside, take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 25, verse 30, and cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, as I begin to study this topic, I was blown away. I thought to myself, wait a minute, this does sound like torment in hell. Weeping and gnashing of teeth sounds like someone who came from the dentist's office and they're just like, had braces and they're just grinding their teeth. They're in pain. I was so blown away as I was studying this topic out, and I typed it in, into the Bible study uh, online website. So interesting, that phrase, gnashing of teeth, wasn't original in the Gospels. It appears one other place. It appears in Psalms 112, and that's a description of when the wicked see the righteous honored. In fact, look what the Bible says. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted with honor. The wicked will see it and be graved. He will gnash his teeth and melt away. In other words, the gnashing and weeping is more of a feeling of regret. In fact, you know when Jesus first quoted that passage, Matthew chapter 8, he's describing a situation when the wicked see the, the people hanging out with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they begin to weep and gnash. Why? Because they're seeing what could have been theirs. So in other words... It's the response when they realize they, could, they lost all of this. They lost all of this. So interesting. Let's keep going. And by the way, I sent the same, same understanding to Edward Fudge, and he completely agreed with it. He says, I've seen this before. I completely agree with this. It makes complete sense to me. All right. The New Testament ex- gives examples of the smoke rising from the eternal pits of hell. Now, 
Let's take a good look, look, look at this. Revelation chapter 14, verse 11. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest or night, or no, they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here's one thing to understand. When people bring up the book of Revelation, there's one thing that always needs to be stated, and that the book of Revelation is always, always borrowing language from the Old Testament. Does that make sense? Yes or no? always borrowing language from the Old Testament. Why? It's because when you have a book of symbols, God wants to give the keys to understanding those symbols. Symbols. So when someone says, look at this verse that talks about hell and torment, it sounds like the wicked are in pain. If they're quoting from the book of Revelation, all you simply do is say, let's see where this verse appears in the Bible in the beginning. Very interesting. Isaiah 34, verses 8 through 10 the year recompense for the cause of Zion. Its stream shall be turned into pitch and its dust into brimstone. Its land shall become burning pitch. It shall not be quenched night or day. Its smoke shall ascend forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. No one shall pass through it forever and ever. And you know what this is talking about? The destruction of Edom. The destruction of Edom. Why? Because the Edomites had attacked the Israelites, when they were trying to rebuild Jerusalem. And here God's giving us an understanding of the wicked as they're attacking God as he's rebu- God's people as they're rebuilding Jerusalem. The same penalty pronounced upon Edom is going to be pronounced upon them, that they will become as nothing. See, you need to understand this and you need to explain this to people. Is that Look, they're quoting many times. In fact, you know what I know something's very interesting? I noticed this. The Old Testament never, pay attention, presents, as far as I can tell, pictures of a fiery hell. It presents pictures of annihilation. We'll walk upon their ashes. They shall be no more. Satan will never be no more. Over and over again, throughout the Old Testament, there are pictures of annihilation. It's only in the New Testament that there are pictures that are introduced where God is simply saying, look, it's not just about annihilation. There's going to be some accountability and understanding before the punishment takes place. And it's not going to be comfortable for the wicked. But guess what? Those verses that are used to talk about that are borrowed from the Old Testament where it was describing nations that were judged and were completely destroyed and obliterated and became as nothing. Very interesting, very interesting. Argument number seven. God judges the wicked and causes them to be punished. Now we're going to take a good look at something. This is going to blow your mind away. Every take your Bible, go to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. We're going to do a little bit of Bible study right here. Revelation chapter 20. If you're there, go ahead and say amen. amen. And by the way, one time I was studying out the doctrine of hell with a young little kid. I was just praying, Lord, what do you want me to share with him when it comes to his teaching? And I was so blown away when God just really impressed me. Teach him about heaven. And I realized that the destruction of the wicked is actually minimized in in the book of Revelation. It's actually heaven is maximized in the book of Revelation. Can you say amen to that? Very interesting. All right. We are going to Revelation chapter 20. I want you to pay attention to the very first verse. Revelation 20, starting with verse 1. Then I saw another angel coming down from heaven having the key to the what? Bottomless pit. That Greek word, now pay attention to this, is the word abusos. It appears one other time in the Gospel of Luke. When the demons are coming to Jesus and they said, have you come to send us to the pit, the abusos? Now, why am I bringing this up? Because the wicked angels know something. They know there's a judgment. In fact, you look at several of the verses that talk about when the demons are speaking to Jesus. You know what they bring up over and over again? 
You've come to torment us before the time. Have you come to judge us? The wicked angels know that there is a judgment. The question is this. They don't know when that judgment is. Now I'm going to make this case. You read the book of Jude. The Bible says that they're reserved in judgment in everlasting chains in darkness. They're kept in the dark about when their judgment is. They know there's a judgment. This is not about survival for these angels anymore. Completely psychotic. They're about making sure you don't get to heaven and take their place. Now this is where it gets really, really interesting. I'm going to show you an Ellen White quote that's blown my mind away. Look what she says right here. Desire of Ages, page 761. And for the sake of man, Satan's existence must be what? So why is Satan still alive? Because of you. Why? Because there are still unanswered questions. And God is keeping, he is perpetuating his existence because there are still unanswered questions for humanity that need to be, need to be answered. Pay attention to that key word, by the way. Satan's existence must be what? Let's keep going. I'm going to show you something very interesting. Revelation 20, starting with verse 2. He laid a hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He cast him into the bottomless pit, shut him up, set a seal on him, so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he what? Must be released. In other words, there are still unanswered questions. Well, what's the big deal about unanswered questions? Unanswered questions for humanity means an unresolved race. An unresolved race means an unsecure universe. An unsecure universe means an unknown eternity. An unknown eternity means the return of Lucifer. God knows if he cuts the work short and there's still left a doubt in humanity's mind, one point trillion years into the future, somebody's going to get up one day and they're going to say, wait a second, God. And the rebellion will start all over again. So one of the reasons why God has purposely delayed and you're seeing these scenes, he has to make sure that there is left no sympathy for the government of Lucifer. Because guess what? In your heart, in my heart, there's still a sympathy. You know that? And by the way, do you know what is destroyed before the thousand years at the second coming of Jesus? It says in Revelation chapter 19, the beast and the false prophet were thrown into the lake of fire. And then at the end of it, at the end of the thousand years, the Bible says, then Satan was destroyed, thrown into the lake of fire where the beast and false prophet are. Do you know what the beast and false, false prophet are? They are religious, political governments. In other words, what is destroyed at the second coming is the government of humanity. But it is only at the destruction of Satan is the government of Satan completely destroyed. Does that make sense, yes or no? Okay, let's continue with this. Verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they that sat on them, and what? Judgment was committed to them. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. That's connection to the verse 6. Blessed and holy is he who has part of the first resurrection over such. The second death has no power, but they shall be priest and God priest of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him for a thousand years. By the way, the book of Revelation says in chapter 1 that we're called to be priests and we're called to be kings. Do you know when we're called to be priests? During the thousand years. Do you know when we're called to be kings? After the thousand years. Do you know the difference? A priest is a ruler, is a spiritual ruler, 
and a king is an earthly ruler over land, territory. And that's why the Bible says right here in this particular part, emphasizing the priesthood part. You know what happens during the thousand years? The righteous go over the, book of the wick, over the books of the wicked. But here's the most remarkable thing. Do you know what is used in judging the wicked? What is the standard? It's the law of God. It's also the Bible, little white says. Guess what? Do you know what Jesus says? And the queen of Sheba shall stand up in the judgment and condemn this generation because a person who was Solomon came to her, yet a wiser than Solomon has come to you. And then the men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment and they'll condemn this generation because they heard the words of Jonah, yet someone greater than Jonah has come to you. In other words, what will be used in judging the wicked will be your own lives as well. Your own testimonies. But this is extremely important because this answers a very philosophical question. And that is who ultimately judges the wicked? The Bible says in Matthew, God has committed all judgment to the Son. But you know what Jesus does right here? He commits all judgment to humanity. Now pay attention to this phrase right here. It is not God so much that judges the wicked. It is humanity that judges humanity. That's mind-blowing. Humanity judges humanity? That's exactly right. You're going to be the judge. In fact, you read 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You know what Paul says? Look, if you can't get along in church, how are you going to be good judges in heaven when you judge the angels? God is preparing you during this time to be judges. And that's why he teaches us about mercy now. We want justice, but he wants mercy. He teaches us about mercy. But it will be ultimately humanity that judges the wicked, which is extremely philosophically important because this takes the sting out of judgment that God completely destroys all the wicked and there's no question asked. And by the way, this is what's extremely remarkable. You know what's so interesting about this? On one camp, you have those who believe that God burns people for eternity. Then you have another camp that believes that God saves everybody for eternity. And then you have annihilationists. And then you have actually somebody who has one foot in annihilationism. And we have another perspective. Seventh-day Adventist perspective includes annihilation, but much more, judgment. In other words, a reason why they're being destroyed. Can you say amen to that? So interesting. You know, so I was so blown away by this. In fact, you know what happens? Right before the wicked are destroyed, God reveals to them where they have rejected him. And you know what happens? With all the facts of the great controversy in view, the whole universe, both loyal and rebellious, with one accord declared, just and true are thy ways, thou king of saints. You know who actually consents to the destruction of the wicked? The wicked. So you have three particular groups. You have God who judges the wicked. Then you have the righteous who judge the wicked. And then you have the wicked who judge the wicked. In fact, what's so interesting, God will not even violate the choice of the wicked to destroy them until they make the choice. All of a sudden, we begin to understand something more about the judgment. It's not so much God destroying them, but simply affirming them, their decisions. Their decision to be destroyed. God will not, I'm going to take this a step further. This one's going to blow your mind away right here. Do you know, I'm just going to lay the facts, I'll let you interpret them. After the thousand years when Satan, is res- when Satan is released and the wicked are resurrected, there is apparently another time of probation. You know that? You know how you know this? Because while the righteous are in the New Jerusalem, apparently Satan has enough time to gather forces, to organize, to inspire, to lead them, to surround 
That takes some time, the New Jerusalem. So what's my point? Here's another fact I'm going to bring out to you. Ellen White says in Selected Messages that up to that point, the gates of the New Jerusalem are open. And when they begin to come and want to attack, that's when the gates are closed. So what am I saying? I'm not saying anything. I'm saying you figure that out. This judgment message is extremely deep, huh? There's much for us to understand and study. Let's keep going. Argument chapter 8. What time is it, by the way? Okay. What would keep the righteous from rebelling again if not for the sight of hell? By the way, this is another argument used by many church fathers, evangelicals, that as the righteous are in heaven and they're going through all of eternity, they're seeing the wicked burning up. And you know what they're saying to themselves? They're saying, well, we don't want to ever rebel against God. So in other words, what is the security of the universe if not the wicked being tormented? That is actually an argument used by church fathers, by many leaders in Christendom. But that's so interesting. Do you want to know what ultimately will keep humanity safe? It will not be the sight of the wicked. Fear could not exist in heaven. Watch what Ellen White says here. It's so powerful. The death of Christ upon the cross made sure the destruction of him who has the power of death, who was the originator of sin. There will be no danger of another rebellion in the universe of God. That which God alone can, that which alone can effectually restrain from sin in this world of darkness will prevent sin in heaven. The significance of the death of Christ will be seen by saints and angels. Fallen men could not have a home in paradise of God without the lamb slain for the foundation of the world. Shall we not, shall we not then exalt the cross of Christ? The angels ascribe honor and glory to Christ. For even, now pay attention, for even they are not secure except by looking to the sufferings of God. Son of God, it is through the efficacy of the cross that the angels of heaven are guarded from apostasy. It is not the sight of the wicked. You know what ultimately keeps the righteous and the righteous angels from ever falling again? Is the cross of Calvary. And that's so much greater than the wicked burning for all of eternity. Can you say amen to that? You're not motivated by fear, but motivated by love for God. Amen? I love what she says right here. That which will keep us from sin today. Sin today in this world is the cross and that's going to be the same thing that's going to keep us safe in heaven. Can you say amen to that? The cross is our anchor. Even angels, look what she says. It is through the efficacy of the cross that angels of heaven are guarded from apostasy. Without the cross, they would be no more secure against evil than were the angels before the fall of Satan. Even the angels in heaven are not kept secure if it wasn't for the cross. So mind-blowing. All who wish for security in earth and heaven must look to the Lamb of God. Can you say hallelujah to that? Amen. Praise God for the Lamb of God. Praise God for the cross of Calvary. That is our safety. That is our motivation. We're going to heaven, not because we fear hell. Hell is not our motivation for going to heaven. But heaven. And who's heaven? Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Can you say hallelujah to that? Now I'm going to, I'm going to write down several questions. I'm going to give you about probably a machine gun approach of questions you can ask people. If the wicked go straight to hell after death, what is the purpose of a second coming and future judgment? Can you say amen to that? Very simple question. If evildoers are burning up for all of eternity, then has God actually destroyed evil or simply locked it up? Here's another question. Under what circumstances could ceaseless torture and endless progressive affliction be justified if we in a sinful world could not tolerate such evil? In other words, if somebody was torturing people for 50 years, you would say that person needs to be put in jail. 
How in the world could we tolerate God doing that? How could we ever love God? How in a perfectly loving heaven could it ever be? Here's another question. If God recreates a new heavens and a new earth, where will hell be located? That's a simple question. I one time asked three or four questions. I, after I was preaching this sermon about hell, I had this Baptist, this old Baptist come up to me, and he's like, I don't believe a word you said about that. You know, they, they want their hell. You know, it's just how they get people to heaven. It's through hell. And uh, he, <laughs> he was like, I don't believe a word for that. You know, uh, you know, we need to have some good fear. And I said, let me ask you four or five questions. I asked him four or five of those questions. I said, I want you to answer those questions and then talk to me about this. And you know what he said to me? He's like, you know, I don't have answers. I said, you better make sure that you have answers. It's that important. How does God pronounce no more pain, no more sorrow, no more death if there is an eternal dying of lost souls? By the way, when does God pronounce no more sorrow, no more death? Not when you get to heaven. After the thousand years. After the thousand years. Very scriptural. If immortality is based on the tree of life, how, could the, how do the righteous burn for all of eternity? Can you say amen to that? Imagine the wicked, they're burning for 50 years and they're falling apart. They're like, we better get another tree, apple from this tree of life so we can live another thousand years to burn for all of eternity. Folks, do you understand? Immortality was based upon what? The tree of life. And there's, the wicked don't have access to the tree of life. How are they going to live forever? Let's keep going. If hell is real, why is it not mentioned in the most leading English Bible translations until Matthew? Most Bible translations acknowledge Sheol should not be translated, ever be translated as hell. It simply means the grave. If hell was real, and if Paul was commissioned by God to preach the gospel to the nations, why did Paul not even mention hell even once except to declare victory over it? Paul never used hell as a motivation, and he preached the pure gospel. Can you say amen to that? That's what's so powerful. Here's some more questions. Look, how do you come up with these questions? We have a lot of time. If hellfire is eternal fire, why is Sodom not burning today after it was destroyed with eternal fire? And by the way, you know how you know there's degrees in the destruction of the wicked, because even Jesus says it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than it will be for this generation in the judgment. Indicating what? There are varying degrees. Let's keep going. Hell, how is the concept of eternal burning hell consistent with God's revealed justice? If hell's forever, why is death and Hades finally thrown into the lake of fire? If Satan, and by the way, the word lake of fire can mean three things. They can overlap. Number one, it can mean destruction. Number two, it can mean God's cleansing fire at the end of time. And number three, it represents a second death. If Satan is destroyed, if Satan is destroyed, and that's what it says in Ezekiel 28, verse 19, he shall be nevermore. How could he burn eternally? Very interesting. These are the last questions. If God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, how does trillions and trillions of years of torment of the wicked ever satisfy him? Here's another question. How does one risk... Uh, rectifying eternal punishing because of temporal deeds. What purpose does destroying sinners nonstop for all of eternal existence ever, ever accomplish? Can you say amen to that? Amen. Folks, when you take a good look at this, we take a good look at what the Bible teaches, there has been some things that have been hidden. I'm going to reveal something to you really quickly as we're closing. The Bible says something very interesting in Isaiah 33, verse 14 15. The sinners in Zion are afraid. The sinners are afraid. The wicked are afraid. Fearfulness has seized the hypocrites. Now watch their question. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? They're wanting to find out which people could live in the eternal fire. He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly. What is my point? It's not the wicked that burn for eternity. It's the righteous. Can you say amen to that? In fact, you know when Moses first saw God, you know what it was? He saw God in a burning bush, and you know what happened? You know what God said? 
take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. But you read several chapters later, in Ezekiel chapter, excuse me, Exodus chapter 33 and 34, God is called Moses up, and now he brings the fire. And guess what? Moses is dwelling in the fire. 40 days without food. In the very beginning, he had to keep a distance to God. The Bible doesn't teach God causes a consuming fire, but God is a consuming fire. And as Moses got to know God, he was able to take a step closer and a step closer. And finally, he went into the fire of God. What type of people will dwell with the everlasting fires? The righteous. Can you say amen to that? Daniel chapter 12, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever. And what are stars doing? They're burning. You get to dwell in the fire of God for all of eternity. Can you say amen to that? You're the one that's going to burn forever. Hallelujah. <laughs> the great controversy has ended. Last paragraph of the great controversy. I love it. It's so powerful. The great controversy has ended. Sin and sinners are no more. The entire universe is clean. One pulse of harmony and gladness beats through the vast creation. From him who created all flow life, light, and gladness through the realms of illimitable space from the minutest of Adam to the greatest of world. All things animate and intimate in their unshadowed beauty and perfect Joy declare that God is love. Can you say amen to that? Every being will acknowledge that when they see all the facts one day. Folks, God wants us to be in the new Jerusalem with him. Amen? Amen. And dwelling in the light of eternity with him. There's so much he wants to share. And this truth has been covered by lies. And when those lies are brushed away, you begin to see something beautiful and attractive. Can you say amen to that? You want to burn in heaven with Jesus forever? Amen. Let's pray. When's the last time you heard a preacher say that? All right. (laughs) Father in heaven, we thank you so much that there are going to be no foreigners in heaven, Lord. Time to get to know you now starts now, Lord. And we want to take a step closer and closer And know more about you. But God, we want to help others come with us as well. Father, lead us to people we can help and clear up um, this lie. And I thank you, Lord, for what Wes Pepper shared this morning. I realize it was providential about the young man when he shared this document. God, you want people to understand this. Give us boldness, clarity, wisdom, and love, Lord, as we're sharing this. In Jesus' name. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.